Father, these uh, songs that we've sung today, uh, the scriptures that we've read have tuned our heart now to hear uh, what you have for us in this story. Lord, we, um, we probably won't get opportunity to see, Joe, to see you like Job got to see you. But we pray that you would give us eyes to see you in this story and in the text of Scripture as your Spirit unfolds it to our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. Let me tell you a story. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. He was a righteous man, blameless, fearing God and turning away from evil. God had blessed his life beyond measure. He had beautiful children. He had animals and land and property and a, and a great reputation in the community. And God one day drew the attention of the adversary to his servant Job. And in that moment, Satan, the adversary, charged God, accused God, brought a, brought a question of accusation. Does Job fear you for nothing? Isn't it true, God, that Job is who he is in his faith only because you've blessed his life? Isn't it true, God, that your worshipers are bought People only worship you because you buy their worship by blessing their life. Take his blessings away, Lord, and he will curse you to your face. And we saw two rounds of Satan's permissive affliction in Job's life where he lost his children, he lost his animals, he lost his property, he lost his livelihood, he lost the trust of his wife, and he lost his health. And yet we still saw him worshiping and clinging to his God. As his friends came and gave bad counsel, as they sought to detect hidden sin that brought this affliction, that clearly God's punishment over some hidden sin life that Job was not revealing, we see the fingernails of Job begin to slip off the edge of the cliff that he's clinging to, and he falls into a deep depression and into a darkness of defending himself, of ranting and raving with his friends, arguing in his sarcasm, in his bitterness, in his anger, in his frustration. He turns his frustrations to heaven and he begins to accuse God. He begins to question his promises. He begins to uh, wonder and question about his goodness and his ways till he gets to the point so self-righteous, so prideful in his heart that he demands that God come down to a human-appointed court where Job can put God on trial and show him that he is being unjust. And because God loves this man, he sent another friend, Elihu, to help him to see the truth of what was going on, to prepare the way 
for the moment we have before us today where God steps on the scene. Now you guys understand that when the director walks onto the stage, the play is over. This is the final act. And that's what we'll see in our drama this morning. We need to kind of get a running start as we come to this first section in chapter 38 where God speaks. Uh, we need to get a running start in the, in the sense of recognizing uh, that this is a book about questions. One of the things we're supposed to see in the book of Job is that suffering causes us to ask questions that we ordinarily would not ask when life is comfortable. And this book has listed probably more than any other book in the Bible, question after question after question. They're good questions. Let me, let me just remind you of a few of them. Job says in chapter 3, Why did I not die at birth if this is how painful my life would be? Why is light given to him who suffers? Why does God keep alive those who wish to die? How can mankind be just before God? What is man? Before his creator. Why does God not forgive me? Why does he just keep punishing me? How can a man be in the right before God? And if you add up all of the questions that Job asks, all the questions that his wife asks, all the questions that his friends ask, it comes to something like 190 questions asked of heaven. And as Elihu prepares the way for the Lord. He compares God to a storm, like God in his power, in his array, is like a coming storm. And we, we wonder, as Elihu compares God to a storm in chapter 37, was there actually a storm outside? This is a great, this is a great day, actually. We've had this over the weekend. We've heard the roll of thunder. We've, we've seen snowflakes and, and hail even at moments over the past 48 hours. And Elihu looks at the weather and he compares God to the the power and the wisdom and and the, the wonder of a coming storm. And as Elihu concludes in chapter 37, that storm gets too close. Dangerously close. Perhaps a, a, a hurricane or a tornado or one of those straight line wind events that we know here living in North Texas, of course, living in what is now Saudi Arabia where Job is, there were those winds that came out of the east And the storm gets too close. And God himself speaks out of this approaching storm. Let's look in chapter 38, verse 1, at God's response. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens Counsel, meaning darkens the plans of God, is what that word means. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. That means prepare yourself like a man. And I will ask you. That word ask means it's a legal term. I will cross-examine you, Job. And you can then instruct me. God continues, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars, meaning the angels, sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors and I said... To the oceans, thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. Verse 12. Job, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? And you know what? It happened again this morning. Were you paying attention? God commanded the morning one more time. And it came. Verse 13. That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Verse 14. It is changed like the clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment and from the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you ever entered into the springs of the sea or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth, meaning the the sky, the, the atmosphere, the outer space? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way of dwelling light? Look down at verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Verse 24. Where is the way that the light is divided or the east wind scatters on the earth? Who has cleft the channel for the flood or the way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people or on a desert without man? Verse 28. Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given its birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. He's talking about the hydrological cycle. He says, do you understand how weather works? Do you make the weather come? Verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Those are constellations. The seven sisters, the the cords of Orion. Orion's belt is what he's referring to there. Verse 32. Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Of course, that's talking about the Big Dipper. Can you do that, Job? Did you make those? Do you command those? Verse 35, can you send forth lightning that it may go forth and say to you, here we are? Verse 37, who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the jars of the heaven when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? Down to chapter 39, verse 1. Job, do you know the time that mountain goats give birth? Do you observe all of the calvings of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time that they give birth? Down to verse 5. Who sent out the wild donkey to be free? Who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? Down to verse 9. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Or will he spend the night at your manger? Down to verse 19. Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leak like the locust? Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? 
stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagles mount up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges up on the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food. He eyes and sees it from as far. His young ones also suck up blood. Where the slain are, there he is. Chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend, meaning to bring a lawsuit against the Almighty? Let him who rebukes God answer it. Now you remember what's happened. Job has wanted to bring God to court to put God on trial and Job is going to take the witness stand and accuse him of wrongdoing. And God here turns the tables on him. God puts Job on trial and he calls every creature in creation to witness against him. God says, who are you compared to who I am? Verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. I am nothing. I am unworthy. I am small. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. We can see that, right? Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. And God says, I'm not done. Verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, now gird up your loins like a man, prepare yourself. I will interrogate you, and you will inform me. Now, you'll remember, maybe you'll remember, maybe you won't remember, way, way back when we started this, that this book of Job is framed by two questions. Two questions that shape and frame and form the bookends for our book of Job. We remember the first question was the question, the accusation really, that Satan made against God. Does Job fear you for nothing? Because this book is about worship, isn't it? It's about why we worship. And, and, and is that why we worship, right? Does Job fear you for nothing? But on the other end of the book, we see the back end. We see, we see the, the finish line question. The other end of the book stack has another book end on the end of it. And we come to that second question, that most important question that frames and guides this book. It's in verse 8. Will you really annul my judgment? And the bottom line question Will you condemn me? Will you literally pronounce me guilty, Job, that you may be justified? The heart of ungodliness is usurping God's position and acting as God's judge. And we saw last time that is the cry of the adversary 
as he desired to ascend heaven and assume God's position in Isaiah 14. That was his accusation in the garden in Genesis 3. Did God really say? That was, that was the clenching thought of Adam and Eve that led to the upheaval and the undoing of the human race as sin came into the world, as they questioned God's goodness, and as they stood in God's judgment, and as they disobeyed His instructions. And it is the cry of every fallen human heart that we as the creature would stand in judgment of our Creator. This is unadulterated pride. This is, this is arrogance in its absolute essence. Listen to John Stott. Pride then is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of sin. For it, it listen to this, it is the stubborn refusal to let God be God with the corresponding ambition to take His place. It is the attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Sin is self-deification. And that's what we see coming out of the heart of our friend Job. Jonathan Edwards, in his advice uh, to young converts, says this, Remember that pride is the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and of sweet communion with Christ. It was the first sin committed and lies lowest in the foundation of Satan's whole building and is with the greatest difficulty rooted out, and is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts, and it often creeps insensibly into the midst of religion, even sometimes under the guise of humility itself. And isn't that what's happened to Job? Under the guise of his own righteousness before God, he accuses God of wrongdoing. How ugly is our fallen nature? You guys know this. The book of Job is like a mirror. It exposes us. How wicked are we to the core? How arrogant really are our hearts? We are evil enough to condemn the very God who made us and sustains us in order to justify our proud, ungodly rants, frustrations, interpretations, emotions, and judgments. And suffering is a spiritual MRI that exposes this fallen wickedness in us. But God's not done. Look at verse 9. Or do, Job, do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Can you adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty, pouring out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low? Can you look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand? Can you hide them in the dust together? Can you bind them in the, in the hidden place? Verse 14. Then, meaning God is saying to Job, if you can all do that, if you can do all these things like I can, 
Then God says this, Then I also will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Right? That's what Job says. God says to Job, If you can do what I can do, then you can save yourself, Job. But if you can't, as is in clearly implied by these rhetorical questions, Job, you are completely impotent to save yourself. And the rest of this chapter on into chapter 41, uh, God describes two powerful creatures. These are his exhibit A and exhibit B in the courtroom. Creatures that are so powerful, so awesome. You probably noticed in your Bible there, one is called Behemoth in chapter 40. And then if you look over chapter 41, the other one is called Leviathan. And these are usually understood as the hippopotamus and the crocodile, respectively. Except there's a couple of problems with that. I mean, just look at chapter 40 and verse 17 for a description of this first one called Behemoth, right? He bends his tail like a cedar tree. And the sinews of his thighs are knit together. Now, um, you ever seen the tail of a hippo? That doesn't fit, does it? It's not a hippo. Hippos don't have tails like cedar trees. In fact, um, that's the cross section of a couple of cedar trees. These aren't little twigs. These aren't little brushes. These are massive Lebanon Cedars that Job is referring to here. Look at the second part. Look at chapter 41. Flip over. Look at Leviathan now. Verse 19. Listen to what this crocodile does. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth. And from a boiling pot and burning rushes, his breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. How many of you have ever seen a crocodile do that? Crocodiles don't do that. We're not talking about a hippo and a crocodile here. What are we talking about? We're probably talking about something like this. That's behemoth. He's got a tail like a, like a cedar tree, doesn't he? And that probably is Leviathan. These are terrible lizards, otherwise known to us as dinosaurs. You say, Job and people lived at the same time as dinosaurs. That's kind of what God's saying. Uh Uh-huh. And God, don't, don't miss the point of this, okay? God calls Job's attention to these awesome, powerful, not-to-be-tamed creatures. Look at chapter 40, verse 24. Can you capture him? You're not going to go up to a dinosaur like that and say, let me put this, let me put this collar on you and a little leash and we're going to walk through the park together. You don't do that. Or chapter 41, verse 1, can you draw out this Leviathan, this fire-breathing, ocean-dwelling dinosaur? Can you just go fishing for him like you do bass in Lake Granbury? Are you out of your mind? 
Look at chapter 41, verse 8. In fact, you can't lay, lay your hand on him and try to battle him, God says, and you will not try to do it again. In fact, you will be laid low even at the sight of him. So here's the point. Here's the point. Come back from the dinosaurs now. Chapter 41, verse 10. Here's the point of all this. So who then is he who can stand before me? Job, who do you think you are? Now, I hope you were paying attention. How many of Job's questions does God answer here? Zero. Isn't that interesting? In fact, God comes back with about 65 of his own questions. Now, I want you to see this. This is so important. God didn't give Job an explanation. He answers none of Job's why questions. God didn't give Job an explanation, which is what Job wanted. God didn't give Job any new information, did he? He said, look out the window. Go to the zoo. Look at the hills. Look at the mountains. Look into the sea. There is enough information in the creation, Job, for you to know what you need to know about me. And isn't that what Romans 1 says? The whole of creation testifies to what? God's eternal power and his divine nature, and it is a sufficient testimony such that all men are held accountable to him. So God didn't give Job any new information. Thirdly, God didn't change Job's circumstances. Where is Job? He's still in the ash heap. He's still on his deathbed. He's bleeding. He's infected. His eyes are swollen shut. He's got worms infecting and and crawling in his sores that are bleeding. His skin has turned black from all of the infection. He can't breathe. There's a stench emanating off of all of this infection. Everybody has abandoned him other than the friends that are there. Nothing has changed about Job's circumstances. You say, so how did God help him? What was his answer? Here it is. God reminded Job of who he is. You need to get this. God doesn't answer the why questions. He answers the who question. And there is a world of help and wisdom in understanding what God does. What we need most in suffering is not to have our questions answered, but to remember who God is. Do you see that? We don't need explanations. We don't need new information. You don't need different circumstances. You need to know and trust your Heavenly Father. Wow. What will Mr. Job say? Let's look at his response of repentance. Job repents. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours 
can be thwarted. This is interesting. He says, you can do all things. What is he saying there? God is all powerful. Right? Is there any question about that, given what's just happened? And look what else he says. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. What's he saying there? God is sovereign. He rules over all. No one, no one can take back his hand and keep him from accomplishing his will. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. No one's going to thwart him. And I was thinking about that. Isn't that interesting that that's what Job says? What are two very common responses of God-fearing people in suffering? Have you heard these? A lot of people who believe in God in suffering will say, will explain suffering like this. Well, God's well-intentioned, but the reason suffering exists is he's just not powerful enough to do anything about it. And yet Job affirms what? He is all-powerful. Other people in suffering, what do they say? Well, God, God, God wants to do something in suffering, but he's just not really in control of everything, right? There's some things God just doesn't control. It's just fate. It's just nature. It's just something else. And Job affirms the absolute sovereignty, the actual absolute rule of God. Look back at 38. The next verse, now, he's going to quote... Look at this. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job is here quoting God back in chapter 38. Okay, so this is a quote. Job is quoting God. God said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now Job's going to give his answer. Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. That word wonderful, it's the same word used in Psalm 139. It means wonderfully too difficult. It, it's, it's, like, it's like studying something in science and being fascinated by it and having no clue what on earth it is and how it works. It's wonderfully too difficult. It is so amazing, it is beyond our comprehension. And Job says, for the very first time, maybe there are some things about my situation that are simply too difficult for me to understand. Remember that? Do you know why God doesn't give us a lot of answers? We don't have the capacity to understand them. And could it be that the reason my suffering doesn't make sense is that it's too difficult for me to understand even if God tried to explain it to me? And we see here the heat of God's interrogation beginning to melt Job's cold heart of pride, don't we? He's going to quote God again. Look at the next verse. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. So that's Job quoting God from back in chapter 38. Now here's Job's answer to that. Job's now going to respond to that question of God. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. It's interesting. Hearing of the ear literally means hearsay. Now, when we hear hearsay, we think, you know, old, an old wives' tale, right? A, 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 fiction, a, a fictitious story. But remember, at this time in the book of Job, 
There's no Bible in existence, is there? There's not even a Torah. There's not even the first few books of the Bible written yet. So the only things that are known about God in this culture are things that are passed down orally from generation to generation. And that's what Job is referring to here. He says, I've heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, by this body of oral tradition in my community. Look at this, though. But now my eyes see you. This is what theologians call a theophany. It's where the invisible God who is spirit takes on some sort of visual representation so that he can be seen with the eyes of people. And you know, it's, it's what Moses saw, the, the burning bush, right? It's what Isaiah saw. It's, it's the Lord high and lifted up. It's a theophany. It's a visual encounter with the invisible God. What does Job mean by now my eyes see you. I mean, clearly he saw something, right? God spoke out of the whirlwind, and that whirlwind, that storm, was some sort of visual representation of God. But that's not what he's really talking about, isn't he? He's not saying, wow, I saw God in the whirlwind. What is he saying? Now my eyes see, meaning now I get it. He's talking about the the eyes of his heart. It's a spiritual sight that he sees here. I remember, God, who you are. Now, this is really interesting. When Job says, now I see you, now I understand, he's not saying, now I understand in the sense of God is announcing his innocence, right? He's not saying, now I get it, God has given me an explanation. What he's saying, now I get it, meaning God alone is God and he does whatever he pleases. That's what he sees. On your notes there, we'll call this the optometric use of suffering. We've been looking at these uses of suffering. Uh, This is the final one that we'll see in the book of Job today. Suffering helps us to spiritually see more clearly. Listen very closely. How does God comfort us in our suffering? He does not comfort us by giving us explanations. He comforts us by helping us to see Him more clearly. You don't need answers, you don't need information, you don't need your circumstances to change. Draw near to the living God and ask Him to help you to see what you need to see and all will be well. You know, sometimes our unanswered questions in the depths of suffering are often our greatest opportunities to see God as we draw near to Him in trust and submission. Look back at the text. Therefore, Job says, I retract. That word means I despise myself. That's that's the heart of repentance right there. It is a sorrow, it is a dejection of self, it is a retraction of pride, it is a despising of self. And look at this, he says, I retract and I repent, meaning I change my mind. That's what repentance means. I repent in dust and ashes. Now, do you see what just happened? 
do you see this? This is like, this is like the, the pinnacle of the book here. Have you been doing like I've been doing as you read the book going, Job, no, don't go down there. Don't do that. Please. Right. Remember last week, he's, he's looking at the pit. He's looking at the edge. He's thinking about jumping. And God snatches him from the cliff at the last minute. He repents. It's like the prodigal son. He came to his senses and he said, I will go to my father. What's going on here? Job's calamity was not God's punishment for some specific sin in his life. Rather, Job's suffering was designed by God to reveal and then rescue him from a much more dangerous condition in his heart, and that was his unseen pride and self-righteousness. This is a rescue operation. Job does not need relief from his suffering. He needs rescue from his pride. This is a great moment to just stop and pull the car over for a minute. What is it that you might need more than relief in your suffering? Let's personalize this for a minute. What is it that your heart needs rescue from? That's what God is in the business of doing in affliction, isn't it? Another thing, as long as we got the car pulled over here, that I think is worth seeing right here, I think that this is a great time to pause and remember what is the true nature of godly believers. I think people misread Job because they misunderstand what godly people actually look like. We want to root for Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? And then we kind of skip the middle section and we get to the end and Job gets everything back. We say, yes, Job, great Job. Job's our hero. Job, Job is not a Marvel comic character. He doesn't come with a, a blue suit and a red cape. Job is a real human being, just like you, just like me, that's trusting in God. But, but, but think about what we've learned about the nature of godly believers in this story. Struggles with anger. Struggles with frustration. Depression. Anxiety. Doubting. Prideful rants. Unanswered questions. Unrelenting pain. Deep-seated self-trust. Even questioning God, accusing Him, even contending against the Creator. Brothers and sisters, will you see, based on the example we see here, there are no super Christians. Just struggling Christians who quickly repent. That's what it means to walk with God. Spiritual health is not measured by an absence of struggle, but by the regularity of repentance. That what, that, that's what makes for a mark of a person that walks with God. Now, watch this. Verse 7. Let's look at the epilogue now. We'll start with Job's friends. 
And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your, your two friends because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. He hasn't called him that in a while, has he? My servant Job. Now, God here directs his rebuke now at Eliphaz. Remember, Eliphaz is the eldest of the three friends. So he's representing uh, uh, the trio here. And he said, and though these three friends had tried to defend God, as we've seen, their bad theology revealed a false caricature of God that distorted his nature and misrepresented his ways. Listen, listen to D.A. Carson on this verse. I want to read you a quote from uh, one of the finest uh, scholars uh, in the church today. Listen to what he says about why the friend's counsel was wrong. Okay, Listen to this. It's so good. Although they are trying to defend God, their reductionistic theology ends up offering Job a temptation to confess sins that weren't there in order to try to retrieve his prosperity. You get it? Carson continues, if Job had succumbed, he, it would have meant that Job cared more for prosperity than for his integrity or for the Lord himself. And the Lord would have lost his wager with Satan. Remember, we saw that, right? The counsel of the friends intersects with the charge of Satan. And if Job had gone along with it, just to get his prosperity back, he would have been guilty of buying worship just as Satan accused God of doing. Listen to Carson as he concludes. Their counsel, the friend's counsel, if followed, would actually have led Job away from the Lord. Job would have been reduced to being yet one more person interested in seeking God for merely personal gain. End of quote. Guys, we need to never, ever forget. We counsel out of our theology, don't we? Bad theologians make bad counselors because our counsel is only as good as our theology. And God's wrath is kindled upon those that darken his counsel even if their intentions are good. So are there any any hope for the friends? Look at verse 8. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. This is interesting. Watch this. And offer up a burnt offering for yourself and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Isn't that interesting? Job is going to intercede for his friends. Look at verse 9. We see Job's intercession. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told him, and the Lord accepted Job. How ironic is that? That after criticizing Job for his lack of faith, his self-righteousness, God turns the tables on his friends by making Job the one who intercedes for them. Did you notice, by the way, that God calls Job my servant four times? There's been restoration, hasn't there? His repentance has brought fellowship back with God. And in fact, there's a picture here that I, I I can't wait to tell you about. 
You notice the picture that what just happened? Follow me on this, okay? A man is unjustly accused by his friends, considered to be punished by God, who is called my servant, ends up interceding for the accusers by offering atoning sacrifices which bring restoration, and this servant is accepted by God and blessed by God, and as we'll see in a few verses, this servant ends up seeing his posterity. What does that sound like? How about Isaiah 53? the suffering servant that points to the coming Messiah. It's another little picture of the gospel there, isn't it? So Job's friends, Job's, uh, Job intercedes for them. Look at verse 10. Look at Job's restoration. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Now we need to stop and ask, why now? Why? This is very important that you get this. Why did God delay to restore much of what Job lost? It's very important that you see this. He delays because God's blessings are not benefits earned by Job's repentance, repentance, but tokens of his grace freely given when Job extended grace to his friends. That was a mouthful. So let me explain that one more time, okay? Job repents, right? And yet God didn't go, Wham, wave the magic wand and he gets everything back. No, no, no. God, Job's fortune is not restored immediately. It's delayed. Why the delay? Because God is emphasizing Job, God, or excuse me, God's blessings that are restored are not what is due to Job because he earned that by his repentance. God's blessings of Job now are tokens of God's grace freely given to Job when Job extends grace to his friends that have been accusing him. That's really interesting, isn't it? Really quite amazing. And I think there's a, there's a challenge in this. When we are hurting and suffering Will we choose to extend grace to others, even those who are trying to help, but really have become our enemies? That's a, that's a really interesting insight from Mr. Job there. Look back at the text. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And that, that literally became true. If you go back to chapter one and compare it to this, these verses, Everything doubles, except he doesn't get an extra wife, and he doesn't get 20 kids, he gets 10 back, but all the animals double. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, all who had known him before, remember everybody abandoned him, everybody thought he was under God's curse and he had this infectious disease, so they all, they all ran off and disowned him. All, now all these brothers and sisters, all who had known him before, come to him and they ate bread with him in his house, they consoled him and they comfort him for all the evil that the Lord brought on him. And don't get stuck on that word evil, it just means calamity, it just means the, the affliction that come under God's sovereign hand. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold... And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, and he had seven sons and three daughters. 
And God extends His grace to Job once again. Now, we've got to talk about these girls here for a minute. Let's talk about Job's daughters. The next verse tells us their names. And as you know, especially in the Old Testament, names, especially when something really interesting has just happened, names of people, especially newborn children, are very significant. Right? For example, what does, uh, uh, what does Abraham and Sarah call their promised son? What's his name? Isaac. What's it mean? Laughter. Why? We're too old to have a baby. God gave us one. Right? You see? And, and all throughout, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Listen to the names of the daughters. Because they help us to understand what's going on here a little bit. The first daughter's name is Jemima. And I don't know why I think about maple syrup when I hear that name, but um, that's not what we're talking about here. Jemima in, in Hebrew means day, or actually day of day. It, it, it's a really interesting word. And it emphasizes in a symbolic way the darkness of Job's affliction has ceased and morning has come. Light has come. Daylight has come in the darkness. And it emphasizes the spiritual sight that Job has now being able to see. His second daughter, Keziah, uh, it's a word that, that me, it's, it's actually a derivative of a type of bark that was used to make perfume. Uh, so it, it would be like calling your daughter sweet smelling perfume. You say, why would you call her that? Because Job has just been sitting on the trash heap with these boils and sores that are infected and, and oozing and, and there's things growing in them and the stench would have been smelled for miles. And all that's changed now, hasn't it? So Jemima reminds him about his spiritual sight. Keziah reminds him about his physical health that's now been restored. There's a pleasant smell now in the house, as it were. Look at the last daughter, Karen Hapuk. Um, that'd be a mouthful if she wasn't doing what she was told you had to get after her. right? Karen Hapuk, right? You'd get all that out. It literally means horn of plenty. And it roughly corresponds to what we think of today as a cornucopia, right? And so this third daughter is a reminder of the abundance of God's grace that has come upon Job at this moment of his life. Verse 15 tells us, And in all the land no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And you know this, that was exceedingly rare, wasn't it? that the daughters would get part of the inheritance. And that was just emphasizing uh, Job's grace, particularly shown to his daughters. And Job's epitaph, verse 16, And after this Job lived 140 years, assuming that means 140 years after he has 10 more children and all this uh, grace comes back to him, we're talking about a man that lived in well over 200 years old. And it says here, he saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations. I think that means he saw his great-grandchildren. Verse 17, and Job died an old man and full of days. Interesting. There is only one time in the whole Bible that the Bible says of somebody else, a man died full of days. King David. 
And there's only two times when the whole Bible says, other than with Job here, that a man dies as an old man. You think everybody dies as an old man or most die as an old man. Well, no, that's, that's significant. Only Abraham and Isaac were said to die in the, using the same terms. And, and so Job's epitaph is put with Abraham, Isaac, and King David in this. Now, what does it all mean? What is the book of Job about? We have seen in the three themes that I've taught you about, we've seen <clears throat> that Job has been corrected, hasn't he? He's got that false view of justice. He's accusing God. God comes to him and reminds him who he is in light of who God is. And Job repents. He submits to God. He humbles himself. Job has been corrected. The friends come, as we saw the second theme, with suffering, the wrong theology. You're suffering because of God's punishment. God has corrected them. Job has interceded for them. And they have been restored. How has Satan been corrected in this story? Because we think Job accused God, right? Job was slandering God. He was calling for a lawsuit. See, those are not the marks of an unbelieving man, are they? God, this story is so interesting in that Job returns to worship God without the blessings being restored. And that's what thwarts Satan. God reminds him. He repents. Nothing's changed, right? He didn't get anything back. Circumstances haven't changed. Physical hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. And that's why God delays the restoration of Job's fortune. He delays the restoration to thwart Satan's accusation. So Satan is corrected. And, you know, I think it's appropriate in this book of questions that we look at some final questions. The questions that this book has asked of us, the readers, right? Let's look at them again. We've heard most of these before, but ask yourself these questions one more time. Why do we worship? These, these of course, map right onto the themes, right? Why do we worship? Do we worship God because He's worthy or because of the stuff and blessings that He brings? Will we submit to whatever God brings, right? Whether it's suffering, whatever my lot, He has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Will we submit to whatever God brings? Thirdly, Will we trust Him when we don't understand? Will we accuse Him? Will we contend with Him? Will we demand answers? Or will we humbly submit and trust Him when we can't make sense of it all? Oh, and there's one more question. Did you know there's a divine, God-inspired commentary on the book of Job? Turn back all the way to the other end of your Bible in the book of, of James. Book of James. James chapter 5. We're not, we're not done yet. Come on back. James chapter 5. There is a God-inspired commentary on our book. We've got to look at it. And isn't it interesting that the very first book written in the Old Testament, that's Job, the commentary on the book occurs in the very first book written in the New Testament, the book of James. James chapter 5. Are you there? James chapter 5. 
Look at verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your heart, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now he's going to give some examples. Verse 10. And as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Here it is. Verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's doing. Now stop right there. Stop right there. Look up. Look up. He's saying, yes, Job is an example, but an example primarily of what God did in his life, right? We don't make a hero out of Job. We make a hero out of God. Okay, with that, come on back now. Okay, uh, uh, where are we? Verse 11. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing. Here it is, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. There's our last question. Will we intentionally look for his compassion? James here gives us two words that emphasize God's affection, his compassion, his mercy, his concern. You say, how does God show us compassion to us in our suffering? How have we seen the compassion of God in the book of Job? God doesn't leave him. God does not abandon him. He will not abandon us in our frustration, in our anger, in our pride, in our depression, in our anxiety, even in our accusations, our contentions. He loves us still as a patient father. He is a long-suffering Savior. He afflicts in order to rescue. He brings suffering in order to sanctify. And He is oh so merciful in that He will walk alongside us until the work is completed. There are no super-Christians, only struggling Christians who keep coming back to an ever-patient God who is utterly relentless in His commitment to finally and fully and completely shape us into the image of His Son. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this book. Give us eyes to see what Job saw. And might we humbly submit to You, worship You, trust You, and stand in awe of your great compassion and mercy toward us when we are at our worst hour that you don't leave us or forsake us, but your love patiently walks with us until we look just like Jesus. Father, make these things true. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.